0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Jack Cush and I'm here with Artie Cavanaugh. Hey Artie. Hey Jack. All right. It's another Tuesday night show. This one featuring highlights of a session that Artie was in fact um, part of the faculty of. This is uh, advances in spondyloarthritis. We have three speakers. Um, Nigel Haroon from University of Toronto is going to talk about advances in therapies uh, and specifically therapies for spondyloarthritis. Artie get, had the Thankless task, but did really well with the topic of enthesitis dactylitis. You know, a lot not known there, a lot still to be learned. Um, So I'm really excited about that. And then we finished up with a session on HLA B27 related inflammatory eye disease by Dr. Robert Wang here in Dallas, University of Texas. So um, I hope you're all settled in. I'm going to enjoy this. I want to thank the sponsor of this particular. Edition of um, the Room Now Live uh, programming uh, sponsored by uh, Novartis. Um, I, you'll think you'll see um, that they've actually sponsored two of these Tuesday night rheumatology programs. Uh, and we're going to begin with um, Dr. Nigel Haroon again from the University of Toronto. And Nigel talked about a number of different things. We're going to drop in on his talk where he starts to talk about studies on non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. We all
1: know uh, that uh, the treatment response is similar uh, in AS patients and non-radiographic axial patients. You can see here as an example from the uh, circular semapical study where both AS and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis patients are included. You can see the ASS-40 responses and AS patients, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis patients almost similar uh, responses. Now, uh, what is recent is um, there is now evidence for IL-17 inhibitor use uh, in non axial SPA. This is the first study I'll show you. secukinumab 150 milligrams improved uh, signs and symptoms of non axial SPA. This was a phase three double bind study. This was a um, uh, study design where lo- loading secukinumab was compared to secukinumab without loading and placebo. Uh, uh, up to one TNF inhibitor failure was permitted and um, um, uh, patients were followed over a period of 52 weeks on placebo or the drug to uh, uh, to look uh, to find uh, to look at the primary endpoint. Okay, so um, you will see here that patients had um, either MRI positivity around 42%, or just CRP positive around 27%, or both positive around 30% Okay and only around 10 percentage had used uh, one TNF inhibitor in the past. Now, straight away going to the results, you'll see the significant uh, improvement uh, in symptoms with, uh, with an ASAS 40 at 16 weeks of around 42. No significant difference at 16 weeks when you compare uh, uh, loading with versus no loading, but early on there appears to be an advantage of loading for um, Um, uh, for achieving these responses at much earlier uh, time points. But by 16 weeks, there doesn't seem to be a difference there. And you can look at uh, the long-term effect results at week 52. You'll see here that the patients continue to respond uh, um, at uh, 52 weeks uh, of uh, treatment. Uh, this is the second study, this was map. the other IL-17 inhibitor currently available and uh, this again was a phase three trial, it's a, again a 52-week placebo control trial um, and switch to open label was uh, permitted at uh, week 16. Uh, here you see um, the two doses were studied, exocasimab every two weeks or every four weeks compared to placebo. Around 300 patients were randomized to approximately 100 uh, patients uh, per group. Uh, the primary um, endpoint here, as you see here, the primary endpoint was at 16 weeks. There was also a, a dual uh, primary endpoint at, at 52 uh, weeks as well. Um, you can see the asas response at week 16 was significantly different compared to placebo, uh, where with not much of a significant difference between the two dosing regimens, and at 52 weeks as well, it was significantly different compared to uh, placebo. So the next question is, uh, can we withdraw treatment in non radiographic axial SPA? Okay, this is the Ability 3 study. Very briefly, I'll go through these slides very quickly in the interest of time. As uh, so the patients were included in the study and given open-label adalimumab, if sustained remission was achieved at week 28, they were either asked to continue adalimumab or completely withdraw adalimumab. And we all know the results. Um, around 305 patients entered the study for uh, uh, for, for the uh, 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 for the randomized uh, phase, and um, you can see here a significant uh, drop of uh, when patients uh, stopped adalimumab. So uh, this study almost showed that uh, a flare is almost uh, inevitable in a significant chunk of patients who so stop biologics. So maybe stopping biologics abruptly is not a good idea. But how could we taper uh, the dose of uh, biologics in in Axial LSP in general? And this study was, um, this question was answered in this uh, certilism epigol dose reduction study. So, again, similar to the previous study, open label induction phase by week 48. Then patients were randomized into either continuing full dose or uh, half the dose of certilism epigol or continuing in placebo, which would be equivalent to. Uh, completely stopping, and um, uh, around six sixty patients o- uh, completed the open label of which 323 achieved sustained remission, which is a good number, and they entered uh, uh, the randomized uh, double-blind phase. And you can see here, if you stop treatment, the placebo group, significant uh, drop-off, uh, uh, while not much of a difference in continuing versus uh, just reducing the dose. And there was no difference when the patients had radiographic or non-radiographic axial SPA similar results were seen. So clearly, you uh, know, dose reduction is feasible in axial SPA. Okay, uh, coming on to the next case here, we have a 46-year-old female who has acclosing spondylitis with bilateral grade 3 sacroiliitis, B27 negative but high type, and already failed etanercept uh, uh, infliximab and secukinumab. So um, Limited options uh, are um, uh, an issue with axial SPA treatment, unlike in rheumatoid arthritis, and even for PSA, there are many more options compared to axial SPA. But hopefully, uh, not for long, because uh, we have new uh, drugs coming into the market. Uh, this is a study of rupidacetinib, the SELECT-ACCESS-1 study. You can see this is the design of the study. There was a 14-week uh, placebo-controlled phase of 15 milligram of rupidacetinib compared to placebo. And followed by open label extension up to week 104, the primary endpoint being ASAS-40 response. Around um, uh, 90 patients in each uh, arm were included. You can see the uh, study characteristics of the patients. The V27 positivity was around 75 to 80 percentage, and duration of symptoms was again quite long at around 14 to 15 uh, years. Yeah. The results. At um, the primary endpoint, uh, ASAS 40 at week 14, significantly had almost double in the opidacitinib group compared to the placebo group and uh, treatment uh, response is sustained. In fact, it looks like almost like there is continuous improvement even beyond week 24 uh, to uh, up to week uh, 64. And uh, you can see that more clearly um, in, the, um, in, in the partial remission, as well as in active disease uh, uh, data, there appears to be even beyond 24 weeks, there appears to be uh, additive uh, improvement over subsequent weeks with continued treatment right up to 52 to 64 uh, weeks. Okay, and, uh, and to complete the story, MRI evidence of inflammation as well significantly uh, improves with the uh, treatment of uh, um, uh, with ipodacetinib. This is a second jack inhibitor, uh, tofacetinib for the treatment of uh, AS, again, a uh, uh, phase three randomized uh, double blind. Study a similar kind of a uh, uh, design where double-blind phase up to week 16. The primary endpoint here is is 20, uh, followed by open-label phase uh, um, up to week 48 here. And you have around uh, more than more than 130 patients in each uh, arm were included. Um, basic uh, demographics of the patients: you see B27 was higher here, around 83 to 85 percentage, and. Uh, you can see here the duration of uh, AS symptoms, again, was m- very high at around uh, 15, uh, 12 to 15 years here. OK, results. Um, again, here, almost uh, double the amount of uh, ASAS-20 response, uh, primary endpoint at uh, uh, week 16. Um, uh, week 16 can be seen here. Um, uh, you can also see the other uh, parameters, here, change in uh, uh, ASTAS, change in high-sensitivity CRP, changing the fatigue scores, all uh, were significant in the trefasitinib group. So uh, we can uh, summarize all of the uh, 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 lessons from today. Definitely there, the paradigm of axial SP management has changed. There is an emphasis on early diagnosis. There is a window of opportunity in the treatment of as uh, We know that uh, biologic treatment uh, can help uh, reduce the rate of progression. Uh, Dose reduction in axial SPA appears to be feasible as opposed to completely and abruptly uh, stopping treatment. Uh, Different modalities of uh, treatment beyond the NSAIDs and TNF inhibitors are available, especially the new data on IL-17 inhibitors and non-radiographic axial SPA extends the use of this medication to the full spectrum of axial SPA and the new drugs that are likely going to be in the market soon, JAK inhibitors.
0: All right, so interesting set of data, you know, going into some kind of uncertain area, non-radiographic axial spa, early window of treatment and early disease and the efficacy of all that. His, the, you know, all of these lectures, their full content, 30 minute content is available on Room Now and on, and on our YouTube channel. Beginning of this lecture, he talked about the non-steroidal trials and whether they are truly disease modifying as has been claimed. But Artie, what do you think about this concept of Really get the spondylitis patients early and uh, and treat them early.
2: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's always tough, though. Uh, we know uh, there's data just published last year that uh, really was no better than the data a decade ago in terms of there being up to a ten-year delay from when patients first have a symptom until they actually get a diagnosis of uh, axial spa, and it's understandable because the symptoms can be. Uh, indistinguishable from what normal people may have in terms of back pain, especially if you're not looking for it. Uh, but that's, that's disappointing. So yeah, I think we, we do want to get, get people in earlier, especially uh, you see, as he ended his talk with the, the possibility of the inhibitor, which is super exciting because the lack of effective DMARDS on axial arthritis leaves us non-steroidals, uh, TNF inhibitors, then we have dial 17s, which is a welcome addition, but now having another option, um, that's that expands the a number of options you know, by 33% or 25% or some percent.
0: Fuzzy think, math. Fuzzy math, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I think that early is always better uh, and aggressive is certainly always good. The real problem is that there's certainly a number of old reports and recent reports about the continued delay in the diagnosis of spondylitis and that the lag time from onset of symptoms, to the time they get to a rheumatologist or someone who can write something more than Advil for this is still way too long. And it's almost a public health problem that um, I think it's gonna take rheumatologists to solve because no one else seems to have either, is either invested in this or has a good idea about doing this. Um, I think it needs
2: it needs more time, and it needs um, a more therapies really helps. I think we saw that in psoriatic arthritis, the TNF inhibitors were new. Um, it took a while for them to be adopted, and I think the availability of other uh, agents really helps that. And, and and you know I think that's true across medicine. Uh, for hyperlipidemia, for osteoporosis, you have one gangbuster development, but it's really having many more choices that that moves the the needle uh, or gets to the tipping point to
0: where we're we're starting to see that. Another question will be: Will the introduction of the oral agents, the JAK inhibitors, um, uh, you know, all filgotinib, upat, they're not going to be in development, but at least internationally, they might be. But uh, upatacitinib and, and also uh, topacitinib have got good data, and they are probably going to go in front of the FDA if the FDA can ever get around to making more decisions about JAK inhibitors. Um, and, and that'll change the game. Maybe, you know, the addition of, of, of an oral agent will further push people more towards early, earlier aggressive therapy as opposed to, I've always had a lot of patients, young men who said, nah, doc, I, I didn't want to stick with my nonsteroidal." And I have to beat them up over years. And then when I finally put them on TNF and everybody they say, why didn't you make me do this five years ago? Mm-hmm. But, you know, will that be easier when you get a, get the Jackson play? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a tip for maybe some of our younger uh, colleagues on the on listening. I, I think it's important to stress to the patients, this is not an irreversible decision. Uh, try it. Try a new therapy. And if in 12 weeks they say, like many patients do, geez, I should have done this earlier. that's uh, if in 12 weeks you're not a lot better, then that's not for you. And I, I think sometimes patients need help getting over that hump because it's a very big decision to go on this therapy and they're young and it's lifelong therapy potentially. Yet, um, I think, uh, and actually the data on the tapering the dose, I think are very, very helpful in that regard as well. But you, I can't tell you when you can stop it, but maybe you could cut the dose and everybody loves that.
0: Especially when they're doing good. Again, I'm, I, I still think the jury's out on non-radiographic axial. We've got three drugs that are approved, citalizumab, um, uh, ixikizumab, and now um, the uh, secukinumab. Um, and just what I'm about to say, it doesn't even exist. Then I have two patients show up with non-radiographic axial spa in my clinic, You know, either meeting the criteria of inflammatory back pain, not meeting X-ray criteria, but having either an MRI or a CRP. I, do, I have seen them. I probably, maybe in the last year, I've seen a good... Good six cases, but um, but they just seem to be in the nooks and crannies of life and not showing up enough in my clinic.
2: Well, I don't think we worry about it like the Europeans do because I don't think we have to necessarily. I spent an hour on the phone today trying to get an MRI approved uh, to get a peer to peer, and I went and like literally it was an hour. And as soon as I got to the doctors, I like, fine. you know like five seconds and he didn't care axial non-axial x-ray whatever I just said he's he's they approved the lumbar I said I, I need the pelvis I need to see the SI he goes oh okay so I we don't get the pushback and the guy wasn't saying well the x-ray are there any x-ray changes I'm not going to pay for it there's no x-ray changes no he just you know just wasting my time for an hour
0: <laughs> yep such is life all right let's move on our second presentation is um, advances in our understanding of enthesitis and dactylitis by Dr. Kavanoff from University of California, San Diego and the Innovative Therapies um, Program. Yeah, that's you. That oh, would be you. Okay. All right. So listen up. Here we go.
2: What about dactylitis? Dactylitis uh, is from the Greek word "dactylus," which means finger. And for those of you with some gray hair, remember when uh, you had to study poetry? Remember when poetry actually rhymed? Uh, and we talk about dactylic hexameter. It was long, short, short with the, this. Okay, that's going way off. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, anyway, it's dactyl. Dac, the uh, dactyl means finger. So dactylitis is, to me, and we can t- uh, talk about it. The people have other ideas. Uh, to me, it's cinnamitis tendinitis, tenosynovitis, and enthesitis all in a single digit, which gives us the so-called sausage digit. And like, I think like many of us, I've come to really hate that term because I, I think for every patient who walks in thinking they have a sausage digit, maybe one out of 100 actually has uh, enthesitis and dactylitis, and the rest are just sort of a weird fibro that thinks that their fingers are swollen that day or something. Um, we think of it with the spondylarthritic conditions, certainly, uh, with axial spa, with psoriatic arthritis, but it occurs in other rheumatic diseases, in fact, gout. Uh, gout, where you have very brisk inflammation outside the joint, uh, the regions of the joint itself can cause dactylitis, but so can a number of other conditions, including back in the day, infectious conditions, uh, less of that now. Other things like sickle cell disease can also give us this appearance of disease. So to me, dactylitis is anthocytis plus synovitis all in the same digit. How common is it? Well, let's look in psoriatic arthritis. Again, I think there are better data in psoriatic arthritis than in ankylosing spondylitis or axial spa. And as you see, the, the, this was a systematic review from a number of studies of extra um, of various uh, extra and other domains in psoriatic arthritis, 65 studies. What they found is is pretty common. of the patients had enthesitis, 25% had dactylitis. So this is something we see all the time. I think their numbers were probably similar in spa, although, as I said, there are fewer studies that address this. More common than, say, uveitis, which is important and we think about, but is not nearly as common, 3%, the same with inflammatory bowel disease. So enthesitis, dactylitis are common, and I think of them as kind of the missing piece of the complete approach to the patient. We can look at the skin. We've all gotten very good looking at skin psoriasis. Of course, we know how to look at peripheral arthritis. We get a sense of inflammatory back pain. But I think enthesitis, because entheses are everywhere, uh, I, I think that explains some of the quality of life impact that enthesitis can have that is difficult for us to measure in the clinic. Now, we it was mentioned the Grappa recommendations. We'll come back to this at the end. But it calls out the individual areas of dactylitis and enthesitis. And I think this would be true in ankylosing spondylitis as well. What do we do to treat patients? Well, there may be some variability depending upon the different domains that are involved. We're going to focus on the middle, the enthesitis and dactylitis. This is a, a, a very nice presentation. Alexis Ogde, we heard from yesterday, uh, put this together. And it shows kind of the complexity, again, in a psoriatic arthritis population. But if you look on the right, you see the, the symbols that show anthesitis, the knee down the bottom, and dactylitis in the foot. And then see as people present, and this was in the corona registry, just regular doctors taking care of patients with spa and psoriatic arthritis, how often it happened. And we know it is 30%. And it's all—it's—it's it's a mixture. Sometimes it's enthesitis with peripheral arthritis. Sometimes it's just with skin. Sometimes it's with axial disease. So, kind of a a, a, a complex uh, idea that rings true to us in the clinic. We see our patients, and they—they they can have a variety of different involvement. And we're going to look at the data specifically for dactylitis and enthesitis. Well, bringing them into their own, if you will, was the idea that maybe there was something a little bit different going on with enthesial disease compared to, say, with skin disease or compared to, say, with peripheral arthritis. And that was the elegant work. This is an old review now, Rick Laurie's and Ian McInnes, looking at uh, the potential role of IL-23. So uh, IL-23, receptor-expressing T-cells, Present in the entheses, responding to aisle 23, which is uh, elaborated presumably as part of the gut joint axis. That leads to the elaboration of IL-22, which gives us osteoblastic changes and the overgrowth that we just heard from Dr. Haroon. And also IL-17, with synergizing with TNF, gives us some of the damage. So in theses, uh, are an important aspect of the spa conditions, and now we're understanding more about the immunopathophysiology that underlies that. In the future, I think we may be able to tease that out even more. This was an elegant presentation from uh, ULR, not last year, but the year before, looking at the expression of some potential biomarkers, so some of the inherent antimicrobial peptides in the skin, like beta-defensin, some that we think of more associated with bowel inflammation, like uh, calprotectin, and looking at that across domains, and including measures of uh, the uh, uh, neutrophil chemotractant, IL-8, and C-reactive protein, and what you see is a different pattern, depending upon the domains of disease that are most active in those patients. So I really like this. I think this is, of course, this is more hypothesis generating. This is not really proven as of yet. But I think in the future, maybe we'll be looking at the different domains, not just from how we assess them in the clinic, but also perhaps with a more thorough understanding of the immunopathogenesis. And will that translate into more specific therapy? Well, one, uh, you could spend a whole lecture, you could spend a whole program on uh, the idea of how do we assess enthesitis and dactylitis, which is super important, but we don't really have a a ton of time to be able to do that, but it's controversial. Of course, entheses insert into bone, think of tendon insertions into bone, how do you find out if they're inflamed? You push on them. And if you push on them and they're tender, I think most of us would accept that that means that there's something going on there. And we would say that signals the, uh, the presence of anthocytosis Tricky, isn't it? Because you think of enthesial sites, like the insertion uh, about the muscles of the forearm, where they give you tennis elbow, they're also largely overlapping places where patients with fibromyalgia are tender, which I think fits because we're more tender. If you push on urine theses, you're going to be more tender than you are a few inches distal, for example. They're more tender. They're richly innervated with nerves. But we have no way to assess their involvement on physical exam other than pushing them and recording that they're tender. What about highly sensitive imaging? Well, of course, ultrasound is great for that. And ultrasound can find synovitis, because you're looking at anatomic reference points, and tendonitis. And I've been involved in meetings with ultrasonographers. They will argue for hours about what is the difference between tendonitis and enthesitis. Enthesitis being very close to the insertion into the bone. But that's where a lot of the pathophysiology is. If you think of those who do ultrasound, for example, for the rotator cuff, almost all the action is right at the insertion. Versus tendonitis, that is more proximal. Uh, I'm not going to separate those, and I, and I think uh, we're still trying to figure out what the best answer is. There's a study ongoing now that uh, Leahy Eater in at Toronto is putting together trying to look at the optimal use of ultrasound looking for enthesitis. There are publications that will say that uh, there's a big difference. And the question is, which is correct? So if you push on it and it's tender, and yet it doesn't show up with any ultrasound signal, you might say, well, that's fibromyalgia. That's just central sensitization. But what about if it's the other way? What if it's not tender? And you do an ultrasound, and it lights up. And that happens. The correlation between physical exam and ultrasound findings um, is is amazingly disparate. It's it's not nearly as good as we would think. So we're still sort of wrestling with the optimal way to evaluate entheses, theses, both for research studies and also even in the clinic. Tremendous advance was MRI, and here a beautiful slide uh, that you see even using an old MRI machine showing a difference between rheumatoid arthritis on the right where almost all the action is within the synovium and uh, psoriatic arthritis showing synovitis but also very abundant enthesitis. And I think, how do we incorporate the sensitive imaging, like MR, into the evaluations? And it's gotten even more complicated because the techniques have gotten all the more better. So this is a high-strength magnet, the three Tesla magnet, with what they call ultra-short time echo recovery sequences. Basically, this, uh, to me, it's so sensitive, it blurs the line between. the kind of enthesial changes that you might see if you were in the gym this morning for a little bit too long and you you were putting a little bit too much stress on your tendons versus those that are pathogenic and relate to uh, not strictly to force, but just because of the disease itself. Uh, So we're still wrestling with the optimal way to to, um, evaluate enthesitis and therefore, by definition, also dactylitis. I think a, a tremendous Uh, evolution in a very short period of time in how we can consider entheses and this is Georg Schett did a a nice review of this showing that what we have is presumably force which then causes injury and as part of the recovery of uh, the injury you have inflammation of course inflammation is part of the response to the body healing itself we had kind of known about this for a very long time, but I think uh, we know much more about it now. And this is actually a side interest uh, from Professor McInnes, who's interested in lots of things across the board, as we heard from our great plenary talk this morning. But he has done, the, and the people in his group have done a lot of work looking at what happens, what mechanisms are involved in uh, tendinopathy. So if you injure a tendon, what happens to it? Uh, elegant work showing, uh, for example, the intricacies of the kind of type of collagen that's laid down so if you rip a tendon that's type 2 collagen it's very strong it's a linear array that's able to transduce force very efficiently when it repairs it uses type 4 collagen which is kind of like a patch kind of like a scab that goes on the tendon in the meantime we have all the uh, a host of uh, inflammatory mediators, inflammatory cytokines, other inflammatory proteins, non-protein inflammatory mediators like the prostaglandins that are involved in the repair process. So this is a beneficial use of inflammation when it relates to repair. But almost certainly an exaggeration of this same process it would un- is what underlies the pathogenic anthocytosis and dactylitis that we see in our patients. What about in the clinic as we see patients looking at a, sorry, at a cohort, and this is from Daphne Gladman's group in Toronto. Interestingly, a lot of the people have just a couple of entheses. So, as we saw, 30% had entheses in the overall uh, systematic analysis. That's what they found as well. A lot of them have one or two at each individual visit. And these can vary, of course. Somebody who comes in and at one time their Achilles tendon is tender to palpation, next time they come, it may be one of the tendon insertions about the knee. So it can vary over time. Usually it's just a few. Even though it's just a few, they have an outsized effect on quality of life, as we'll come back to. How do we measure these? Well, we push on the tendon. If you push on the location and it's tender, I think we have to accept that as anthocytis. Certainly, that's how we do it for clinical research studies. Which index do you use? Antheses are literally everywhere. Uh, you could spend the entire day examining antheses. The old Maastricht one, I think, took a good part of the day because you're feeling sort of every vertebral level at the spinous process where there are important uh, tendon insertions. So the, uh, you see kind of at either end, the lead is very simple. And it tends to work uh, pretty much as well as those with m- greater numbers. The LEI and the SPARC tend to be more focused on peripheral in theses. The massis a simplified version of the Maastricht, is more axial, more central in theses both can be important in individual patients. And I think that's, that's sort of a, a troubling aspect. We've had some difficulties when we go through our patient base to look for research questions related to enthesitis. I think most of us are not examining all of the anthesis. I think we do what makes clinical sense. That is, somebody walks in and says, doc, I got this pain in my chest wall. We examine it, and it could well be antheses or anthesitis in a person with the spondylarthritis. We're not going to examine the whole breadth of other enthesial sites. So, do we know if they're involved or not? As I say, enthesitis has an oversized impact, if you will, on quality of life. And this was a study from the Netherlands that I think surprised some people. It looked at a bunch of early psoriatic arthritis patients who came in who um, had not had treatment yet. Prevalence of enthesitis in that same range. In this case, they had 40%. Fewer number of patients had dactylitis. But if you look at the spidergrams for quality of life, the point that they found is that Anthesitis had more of an impact on impaired quality of life than, say, peripheral arthritis, which was very interesting. And I think anthesitis is kind of a sleeper and I think explains some of the outsized symptoms that sometimes our spa patients have. They just feel bad and they can't relate to it as our rheumatoids can. I feel bad, and both my wrists and both my knees are swollen, and my knuckles. Uh, I think in, in spa, we see some people who feel just as bad, but it's, it's harder because it's more diffuse. Uh, and it's, it's hard to pin down, I think, because it represents enthesial involvement. Well, what about the treatment? So we'll spend the rest of the time going over the data for the treatment options for this. Adjunctive therapy is very important. In fact, one of the things that's been proven with data to help uh, enthesitis is uh, eccentric exercise. Uh, and and uh, some people would add in injections to that. We're not going to talk much about that. We'll talk about some of the other therapies and what's their effect specifically on enthesitis and dactylitis. Well, you heard uh, Eric Rudiman talked about this yesterday. This was the SEAM study, methotrexate versus TNF inhibitor, in this case, the tarocept versus the combination. We talked. He showed the data in terms of the peripheral arthritis and showed the skin. What about the, the uh, dactylitis with the LDI, the leads dactylitis index, and the anthocytis? In this case, they used the SPARC. Uh, and you see that the therapies seem to have an effect. Now, of course, one of the problems with the seam study, there's no placebo. So you can't really determine the effect size. But we know from other studies in which there was a placebo that the TNF inhibitors, including etanercept, have been effective for dactylitis and enthitis. So this is interesting because it shows that methotrexate is not so far away from that. What about other therapies? Let's go over them, maybe a little bit of a historic time point, including up to the most recent data that we have. So this is a very old study. This was the impact study, an investigator-initiated study that a few of us did starting in the late 90s. And um, as you see here, the the, uh, people with uh, very active skin, very active joints, Uh, incredible difference in this case with the TNF and Ember Infliximab for the peripheral joints, for the uh, skin involvement. We actually also, and for one of the very first studies that ever looked at this, we looked at enthesitis and we looked at dactylitis. And it's funny thinking back, uh, it was really quaint way back in the day, Um, I think a lot of this was designed in hotel bars and a lot of the notes were taken on cocktail napkins. One of the questions that came up, how do you measure enthesitis? And You could argue all day. We went with something very simple, just the antheses about the foot, Uh, the insertion of the Achilles tendon into the calcaneus, and the insertion of the plantar fascia on the other side of the calcaneus. Four spots, the so-called four-spot test. It worked incredibly well. For dactylitis, we had a big philosophical argument, ended up saying that it was only dactylitis if the entire finger was swollen. So someone who had a gigantic sausage that went to the PIP and maybe a little bit distal, but didn't involve the DIP, that was not uh, dactylitis. Kind of made that up. Uh, We also scored it, one, two, and three, because dactylitis is something that can be present and be very bad. Like a three, gross beyond the, the borders of the joints and the digit grossly swollen, one where it's clearly swollen, and two is in between. And that, the trouble with something like that, of course, is how do, you, how do you get consistency among different evaluators or even the same evaluator over time with that? But you see an incredibly clear difference. And the, the dotted line is when the placebo switched over to active treatment. So this was the, really the start of, of adding measures of dactylitis and enthesitis into studies of new therapies. We've been doing it since. Everybody's been doing it since, and we're still debating what's the optimal way of assessing them. But we have a lot of therapies available to us, some that attracted a lot of interest lately, the IL-23 and the IL-17 pathways. This is an interesting study. Uh, this also was Georg Schett's group, and it was focused on anthocytosis. And because it was focused on anthocytosis, patients actually had a little bit more anthocytical in, in involvement than in some of the other studies where we record and assess anthocytosis. but some people don't have it. 30% have it. Everybody had it here. And looking at the spark, the masses, and the leads, and the index, they looked at TNF inhibitors and took the, all the TNF inhibitors the patients were on. This is a, a clinic sampling in, uh, Erlangen, and they found that, uh, worked, maybe eustachinumab even worked a little bit better for enthesitis compared to the TNF inhibitors. Now you can't, it is a head-to-head, but it's not really a study meaning it wasn't randomized. They just allowed whatever TNF inhibitor to be there. But I think the point would be that 1223 inhibition seems to be effective for anthocytosis What about the 17 inhibitors? Well, here's data with secukinumab from the future study. TNF-naive patients, TNF-exposed patients, but call your attention to resolution of dactylitis. So this is one of the other methods that we've seen to report. Take anybody who had dactylitis at the start of the study and then record those who have none at the primary endpoint of the study here at week 24. And then you see the open label extension, which the, the placebo drops out. But a very clear effect on dactylitis and an So the IL-17 inhibitors among the domains, dactylitis and enthesitis, definitely covered looked at in another head-to-head study you heard about this study you know this study you've seen the results published for this this was the spirit head-to-head study which i think was interesting particularly because uh, earlier spirit studies uh, in an earlier spirit uh, the spirit p1 study the data on enthesitis were maybe didn't look quite as robust on first look as some of the other agents. And that caused a lot of debate because the way we, I don't think anybody is entirely satisfied with how we're measuring anthocytis. You could argue which index. You could argue, do you wait for resolution? But this study, proper head-to-head study, powered for the uh, endpoint, as you heard yesterday, of peripheral arthritis, ACR 50 plus uh, uh, pasi um, 90. Um, But here, if you look at the other indices, look at the SPARC, where people who have enthesitis at the start must come to zero on the spark and the LDI, the uh, the lead stactylitis index, those who have it at the start having to go to zero. And it worked, and actually it, didn't, it seemed to work really comparably to the TNF inhibitor, in this case the TNF inhibitor being adalimumab. What about the... Uh, P19, the IL-23 inhibitor, gazelcomab, of course, we're getting more familiar with that in psoriatic arthritis. Our colleagues in psoriasis have had it for a while. There you see the ACR20 responses with the different doses. But if you look here, the resolution of dactylitis, so a dactylitis score of zero, a Leeds anthocytis index score of zero, uh,
0: it can be effective. All right, that was a good presentation. I think that um, a lot of interesting ideas in Including the therapies that work there, uh, you ended with the uh, good data on IL twenty three. But this past week, in ARD, an up and coming young rheumatologist named Mies, Somebody published an article about Tildrakizumab, um, and is, and and it not working really well in psoriatic arthritis and skin and joint, but it didn't work in ankylosis and enthesitis.
2: Emth- yeah, that that's, uh, that study. Um... Sure, not exactly what the sponsors were hoping for. In addition to the the, as you said, the dactylitis and anthocytis, the peripheral arthritis responses were were quite muddled. And in the same study, what you saw was that the the uh, the skin responses were were quite clear. The dose effect, it was better um, better data, if you will. So when you when you see something like that, you wonder just about the, the study conduct. Um, not to uh, besmirch the investigators, but just uh, some inexactness. And as I mentioned during the talk in the early ICSI spirit studies, there was some data that didn't seem like it worked at all in enthesitis. And then you had the spirit head to head, which showed definitely good results, more like we had seen in the other. So I worry with enthesitis about worry more about comparing head-to-head uh, comparing studies not done head-to-head uh so i think i think with the tildra um that that was a bit wonky uh, uh study
0: was, i thought it was a surprising i mean everything else seemed to be on par with what you expect you know minimal these activity scores and you know acr 20 and, and posse scores all, all look good but the, that was a, a to me an outlier and reported that this week in um in, in a room now Let's, uh, I want to remind our audience, we're going to take Q&A uh, questions. We got a Q&A question from Dr. Bot that, um, um, that we're going to ask at the end of the session to Artie about assessing um, uh, dactylitis and enthesitis. But let's go and finish our last talk. Our last talk is Dr. Robert Wang, who's um, uh, a retina specialist, a guy who deals with a lot of inflammatory disease here in Dallas at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. is his affiliation. Um, we're going to drop in at the second half of his talk uh, and hear what he has to say. He's got a lot of interesting points to make about um, the one rheumatologist working with ophthalmologists and some tips on dealing with um, with uveitis. So here's Dr. Robert Wang. I'll see if I can get the right screen share in here.
3: What do I want from you? So if it's coming from me, it's a little different. Like I said, I already know that they're HLA B twenty seven positive. I know that I already checked for sarcoid, syphilis, and infectious etiologies. So what I'm looking for is if there's any systemic diseases. And what you have to remember is that eye disease can precede systemic diseases by about 70% of the time. So even though you don't find anything now, what I'm asking you is just keep them in mind in case they develop something later in life. Uh, so again, think about that when someone who's not uveitis trained sends someone to you. We're just not asking you. That you can help them find something that's causing, just to remind the patient that even though we don't find something now, if you're HLA B27 positive, uh, throughout your life you can develop one of the diseases. Now, what about treatment? So, when we throw someone at you, you know, we get you, we ask you, hey, help us treat these patients. And when you look at the eye, it's a little unique because I tell people we treat it kind of like a teeter totter. On one side of the teeter-totter, we have local therapy, and the other side of the teeter-totter, we have systemic therapy. And what helps us decide which therapy uh, to do is you think about what the disease can cause in, in regards to complications. And if you look at the front of the eye disease, the problems that anterior uveitis or iris can cause is cataracts and glaucoma. Now very rarely it can cause cystoid macular edema. Now, cystoid macular edema is swelling of the macula or the center of vision where we see best. Why we get um, inflammation in the front that causes swelling in the back, we don't know. The blood vessels seem to be more susceptible. Even if you look at the most perfect cataract surgery, we know on fluorescein angiogram, which is a dye study to look at leakage, people almost 100% have leakage in the macula that uh, will go away most of the time, but sometimes it needs to be treated. But most of the time, anti uveitis doesn't always lead to cystoid macular edema. Why do we worry about that? It's neuro tissue. Recurrent bouts of cystoid macular edema can cause permanent damage to the vision. So if they keep getting bouts, all of a sudden uh, their vision drops to 2040. They get another bout, they're dropped to 2060. They get another one, they're at 2070, and they're almost not legal to drive anymore. It's a big change in quality of life. So what we try to do is balance this uh, teeter-totter in regards to treatment. Does anybody know the side effects of local treatment, which typically involves topical steroids? It's actually the same. Steroids, drops to the eyes, can cause cataracts and glaucoma. So everybody says, well, wait, if my treatment is worse than the disease, why am I giving you this treatment? Well, it's a balance. If they're flaring up uh, once a year and you're only using drops once a year, the chance of developing cataracts and glaucoma from steroid drops is pretty low. But if they're flaring up weekly or monthly, uh, the chance of developing cataracts and glaucoma go up higher, then uh, your treatment kind of tilts to the other side of the teeter-totter more for systemic therapy. Now these are our current uh, topical or um, periocular treatments that we have. Predforte, or prednisolone acetate, is our bread and butter steroid. Um, It's been around for a long time. You have to remember to tell patients to shake it up. Otherwise, the medicine sits on the bottom. So I've had patients refer to me where they weren't responsive to the treatment and I ask them if they were shaking the bottle and sure enough, they weren't and they're back to treatment. Now, Durazol is my new favorite drug. Unfortunately, there's no generic, but it's almost four to six times more potent than Predforte. And it has a really unique ability to actually, for some reason, penetrate into the back of the eye. You have to remember our topical therapies are actually kind of hard to do. There's... Uh, when you develop a topical drug, you have to pass the liquid barrier first, so it's got to be hydrophilic, but then it has to pass the cornea, so it has to be hydrophobic uh, or hydrophilic to pass the lipid barrier, and then back to being uh, penetrate into the uh, aqueous, which is liquid, uh, to get into the eye. Um, so Durazole, for some reason, gets way into the back of the eye, even into the macula. Um, uh, I remember I gave a talk down in Houston and a pretty famous retina doc. I told him I didn't give shots next to the eye anymore because Durazol worked. And he was like, what? I've never heard that. And I was like, a lot of us UVI guys noticed it right away. And um, sure enough, someone did a study where they radio labeled the drug, and they were able to prove that it does penetrate into the back of the eye. Uh, Kenelog, like you know, Trimcilin off the shelf. Um, We use it either into or next to the eye. So we can put it next to the eye. Patients love it when I come after them with a needle. Um, um, But there's problems with this. uh, It's a formulation that has a little alcohol in it. And when we do it in the eye, we have some people who get a sterile reaction to it. So they develop a medicine called tracens. It's the same thing. It's just safer to place in the eye because they remove the preservatives. Now, again, the problem with those... Uh, drugs is they can cause cataracts and glaucoma. So I tell people the closer that you move the drug into the eye, the higher chance of developing cataracts and glaucoma. We have a three-year drug that I can sew in the eye. It's called Retisert. It lasts for three years. Costs eighteen thousand dollars to sew in, but it has a hundred percent cataract rate and either a thirty to fifty percent glaucoma rate. So if you look at this, what makes you decide which treatment to use? If you look at all HLA B twenty-seven or all iritis patients. 90% of them keep 20-40 vision or better, regardless of what we do. So in general, it really has a good prognosis. So again, when you're weighing someone to put on Humira or a systemic, and then you're like, man, most of the time you keep vision, this should be a simple bread and butter kind of treatment because most keep good vision. So when you look at the treatment, and someone refers to you, uh, these patients with iritis, topical therapy tends to be the mainstay of treatment. Now HLAB27 is different. It tends to relapse, it tends to alternate from one eye to the other, and it tends to be the more aggressive. So the HLAB27s are the ones that you kind of put the little asterisk by, that this one is the one that you might need systemic therapy. Now, i got a poll question. We're kind of coming to the end. Uh, this is the easiest case for you. Let's say we have a 24-year-old male who's got HLAB27 uveitis. Um, and he's got lower back arthritis, and this gets sent to you. So the poll questions are, or the answers are. Um, let's see. So the rheumatologist would. Let's see where the answers are. They're,
0: they're coming up right now. Okay. Right now, about half the answers are in. It looks like the oh. first choice leading the way. <laughs> A. Start the patient on systemic meds. And then C, look for other causes of eye inflammation. So um,
3: I wish I actually had the. So the. It's going to show in a second there. Oh, okay. There you go. So um, I like answer D. Thank you very much. So uh,
1: <laughs>
3: so the problem is that um, so for this one I think uh, answer A is the best one. So I already know that uh, they're HLA B27 positive. They have the low back. Uh, you can look, but you know that most of the time you're already kind of uh, where it is. And if they have lower back arthritis, I guess if you're looking for that systemic disease, uh, that certainly can be the question or the answer, but you already know that you're going to treat uh, the arthritis. And what happens is when you treat their uh, lower back arthritis, the eye comes along with it. So most of the time, uh, again, this is a pretty mild disease, what you do to treat systemically Uh, Helps the eye in general. So that's actually a super easy one to treat. Now, let's say The second easiest one. This is our next poll question. Uh, You get a HLAB 27 positive person uh, No spinal arthropathies, no cataracts or glaucoma, but they flare just once a year and the um, Eye care professional sends the patient to you and says uh, What do you I want you to see them and do something? So what's the, the answer for this one or how would you treat them? And funny enough,
0: the answers are
3: kind of the same. Well,
0: Yeah, D is not moving up. <laughs> but, Darn it. But the leading answer right now is B, start topical eye drops only, and then a split between A and C, start yeah. on systemic meds, or what for other causes of eye inflammation? So
3: this one, I, you're absolutely right. So uh, a lot of times when I tell my colleagues when they're referring to you, is that not all patients need Uh, systemic therapy. This carries a good prognosis, 2040 vision, Um, and uh, Janet Thorne, she's a pretty famous UVI person at uh, Johns Hopkins, actually had two pretty landmark papers uh, these last couple years, and she showed that if you use topical pred forte, that's that bread and butter treatment, at three times a day or less continuously for two years, the chance of causing cataracts and glaucoma was actually zero. So in some of these patients, the lesser evil versus starting a systemic therapy is actually using topical uh, therapy. So uh, there's nothing wrong referring the patient back to us and saying, hey, why don't you just try chronic topical therapy? Now, we're trained that that's a no-no, but you're like, well, the risk of putting someone on Humira even low and we monitor is pretty small compared to getting cataracts and glaucoma. Uh, Just really quick, cataracts you probably know are just haziness of the lens, and glaucoma can be permanent. That's where the pressure damages the optic nerve, and you lose peripheral vision, and it can work its way in. We can't get the loss back, so that one, um, it's a little more concerning, but most of the time if we catch it easy, or early, it's easy to treat. Now, let's say you would get into some other cases, and this is the three times a day or less where uh, the chance of cataracts and glaucoma was zero. Now, the tough ones, let's say you get this 24-year-old male, he's got no spinal arthropathies. one of the eyes requires three different eye drops to control the pressure, he also has a history of cystic macular edema, and he keeps flaring. Well, this one gets a little tougher. This one, if we use topical drops, we already know that he has glaucoma, they have little wiggle room. They don't have any spinal arthropathies, but this is the one that I might send to you and say, "Hey." you know, this one I might need a systemic uh, treatment. Now, um, again, this is kind of what we were talking about. Now, my last poll question um, here. Oh, I, I think I had one. Oops,
0: did I skip it? They're already, they've already. they actually already answered it. Okay. That, uh, that uh, 90, 80, well, 90% have said they would start a systemic med Perfect. 8% would look for uh, other causes.
3: Yes, so that was a perfect one. Now, uh, when you go back to um, treatment, um, one of the other things that you can recommend to the eye care professional who refers people to you is that we can actually use topical nonsteroidals, kind of like you use systemic nonsteroidals. If they uh, get flares but they're frequent but not too bad, sometimes the topical nonsteroidals aren't strong enough to break a flare, but they're enough to keep them from having one. And what's nice about topical non is they can't cause cataracts and glaucoma, so it's the lesser evil. So some patients who used to flare uh, every two months, I have them on chronic topical um, ketorolac twice a day, and all of a sudden they flare once a year, and that's kind of the lesser uh, evil. Now, uh, Now, if they flare past topicals, and this is kind of what I was saying, this is where, unfortunately, we have to annoy you and we're asking for Uh, Systemic treatment now last tough one. Let's say you get a 74 year old lady with a new onset of iritis You know 50% of time. It's going to be HLAB 27, right? No, that doesn't make sense because HLAB 27 doesn't quite fit this disease you see her walking in like this uh, Bent over do you know what the cause of this one is? Besides reading down below. Yeah, don't forget about bisphosphonates for some reason Fosmax, actinil, even the IV, we see some uh, patients with severe posterior disease uh, can cause inflammation in the eyes. So if you get a patient who has, quote, unquote, iritis referred uh, from uh, an eye care professional and you're like, this doesn't make sense, the lab work was normal, uh, try to look for a drug-induced causes of iritis. Now, my last slide, um, I'll try to get, um, or two last slides, is, again, understand uh, the importance of b 27 iritis, like we talked about, it comprises 50% of diseases. Interpret your role, uh, not only the blood work, which is pretty simple, but uh, number t- three, how you're going to approach treatment. It's very valid to say, hey, the systemics uh, for this mild disease might be too big of a hammer, uh, topical might be better, or we might say, hey, this person has cataracts, glaucoma, and macular edema that we need uh, systemic
0: treatment. Thank you, Dr. Wong. That was uh, that was neat. The whole idea about bisphosphonates causing uveitis was um, the crowd really liked that. The live show that was pretty interesting. Um, we do get a few questions from the audience, but um, I already I, I want to um, um, ask you uh, about um, the idea that um, Dr. Haroon brought up of withdrawing therapy. He talked about um, you know everyone might go the way of reducing dose as opposed to stopping, but Um, Are there lessons to be learned in the RA experience about uh, weaning therapy and stopping therapy that you think are going to apply to uh, the spondyloarthritis patients? Well, I I think only negative uh, lessons.
2: And the biggest one is we don't know who, Um, and I think I see this, I don't don't wanna hear what you see in your clinic. There are definitely people who can taper. Um, I have a lady with psoriatic arthritis who takes a TNF inhibitor about three times a year. Uh, she has these flares, she gets on the TNF inhibitor, takes it, uh, it's a step, takes it weekly for two, three weeks, that's it. And she doesn't take it again. And for, you know, she really has the disease. Um, and then there's a lot of people who say, well, geez, I can't go uh, eight, nine days without having the disease act up. But we don't have any identification of those disease duration. Uh, No disease, no patient characteristics that I know of. So I think we're still sort of stuck. I think think there's a bit of a disconnect because the studies seem more negative than I would say in my personal experience. I think a lot of people can taper and they seem to do well but the studies show pretty dismal results. And maybe that's because they're actual studies and they're following them over time. And eventually a lot of people get away with it for a short time. And eventually people flare, uh, I think is the real life situation. And and that's what we learned already previously.
0: I know we shouldn't be talking in anecdotes, but we're amongst friends here. So my anecdote (laughs) on spondylitis and withdrawal therapy is, is I began it earlier young men who refuse to go on TNF inhibitors or IL-17 inhibitors for years, and finally, I talked them into it, and they're like, and they say, dude, why didn't you tell me about this five years ago? And they enjoy the benefits of biologic therapy, but, you know, look down the road five years later, they stop therapy. And my experience has been the fact that they are doing okay, maybe better than they were when they, when they started, as if maybe they had some disease modification. It's totally anecdotal, but that's, um, maybe it's appropriate to stop in people. One, because they don't want to take it. Maybe they truly don't need it 20 years, 30 years. We don't know the duration of therapy for most of the disease we treat other than they'll flare if we stop therapy.
2: Yeah, I think it's certainly something we're, we're going to see because people want to, it's not just the cost, which is a big part of it, but even if you take the cost away, people don't want to continue on a medicine if they're doing well, if they don't think they don't need it.
0: So, um, Dr. Bilal, Butt asked a question about the specific scoring for assessing uh, and grading enthesitis. Do, do you have any take-home messages that you think are practical um, uh, for the clinicians out there who are not doing clinical trials?
2: I think um, there are antheses everywhere, and the Maastricht is the granddaddy of uh, anthesial assessments, but nobody does that because you, you, you can only see one patient in a, a half day. Uh, I, I think it, it needs to be focused. Um, and I think the thing with enthesitis is pay attention to it. And someone says, my elbow hurts or my chest wall hurts, or I hurt around the, my my uh, hips, and by that they mean pelvis. That can be enthesitis, so that's worth testing. I don't think pushing on every Achilles tendon and every plantar fascia insertion or every uh, uh, quad uh, insertion uh, in, about the knee I don't think that's that's useful. I think it's got to be guided by where the patients have symptoms. And in, in our clinic, we use that little homunculus. And, and if people have pain in the area and their joint is not swollen, it's worth looking for the
0: anthesis. You know, I think it falls under two categories of patients. One, where you're looking for evidence of disease activity and hence enthesitis factor and dactylitis factors into the This patient has active disease because of, and that becomes uh, cumulative evidence that you're going to use to guide therapy. And then I think there's the other patient, minority patient, where um, the enthesitis or the dactylitis is like, is the main reason why they're there. And it's almost like you're doing your POSSE scores, where you have a target lesion that you're going to make all your future assessments on, you know, someone who's got really bad Achilles tendonitis, you're gonna use that as your site of future assessments and the success of therapy. Um, and and you need not do anything more than is it better or, is it, or not, or your four spot um, assessment of Achilles heel um, uh, and, and plantar fasciitis disease. Yeah.
2: I'm surprised nobody asked uh, post the question yet. What What's with that second
0: speaker and flannel?
2: What's going on there?
0: Um, well, you know, uh, it is COVID and, um, uh, all, you know, there's, there's, there is no dress code. And, this, uh, is, this is San Diego.
2: So flannel shirt and board shorts. I'm not going to show them. Just trust me. And flip bumps.
0: Is it the temperature in San Diego? Like always like 72 or eight? It'll get down in the high sixties. We got winter. Oh, well, yeah. That's, <laughs> I, I, I feel for you. Um, um. Dr. She asked a question about a patient, 43 years old, psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis, failed everything but the kitchen sink, Enbrel, Umira, Cosentix, Tremphia, Zeljans, now doing fairly well on Tulsa methotrexate, skin's doing great, but there's tenosynovitis going on. You know, what's the, what can you do? What can you say? Should you continue to switch within MOA classes? Like, you know, you're, you've already been on two IL-17 inhibitors, and you want to try a third, or you want to try, you know, a, another 23 inhibitors? I think
2: a couple of things, When our European colleagues especially would say inject. Um, I think there's, uh, for tendonitis or emphysitis, there's, there's a little bit of a worry, more so than for synovitis. Synovitis, I would say definitely inject. The, the issue with the tendonitis is, uh, first of all, you worry about tendon rupture if you inject the tendon sheath but also the data on steroid injections are really pretty abysmal for tendonitis. Uh, and that's plays into the whole controversy lately with the PRP injections, which are not, uh, if you compare them to a steroid, it doesn't look like they're that much worse, but they're both bad. Um, so I would say if there is, ten, if there's syndivitis an injection would be reasonable. You always worry about the methotrexate dosing. Is that something that could be pushed? Um, you sure hate to give up if the skin is doing great. I think that would be, um, and you know, I think this may be the person. Uh, occupational therapy may be able to help. They do a lot of tricky things, and um, they can really help the patients with uh, hand uh, uh, symptoms because some of it may be stress related. So it may be some physical activities that are perpetuating this tendonitis. So, uh, occupational therapy, I think, can be real valuable in, in this kind of a case.
0: Um. What do you think about combination biologics? You're doing well in aisle 17. Could you add in another biologic? Are you, is that um, crazy talk? Um, I, I, I think of course there's a concern. I haven't done it in cases like
2: this. The only times I've done it is when the GI, my GI colleagues want one biologic and I want another and we have had people ended up on both. And um, you know, I think there's concern, but I think it, I think it does make sense, particularly if there's, uh, domains where the, as it for me, it's most of the GI where the bowel doesn't do anything when you're on a TNF inhibitor and they go to vedolizumab, and the joints don't do anything on vedolizumab, So we go back to the TNF inhibitor. Um, and then, you know, now the jacotins sort of play with that. So I, I think in that setting, um, uh, I, I think it will be, and there will be studies of combination um, biologics. There are some underway uh, for example, with the, the 23 inhibitor and TNF inhibitor, so in uh, ulcerative colitis. Very interesting to see those data when they
0: come out next year. You know, it's a good example you give because when I have used combination biologics, obviously you get a big pushback on uh, reimbursement for that. Uh, and after you wait <laughs> an hour on the phone to talk to someone, um, it's, a good, it's a good tact to say, well, the IL-17 inhibitor is for the, the skin, I need a TNF inhibitor for the joints. It's two different diseases, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, or IBD, and the seronegative arthritis. I mean, taking that tack is sometimes helpful in getting those approved. So um, you, you, you started to pepper the audience with dactylic hexameter. What, what, what is that? I mean, is that like secret Satan society talk? What are you talking about? Come on, it's the Iliad. You know, that was like the next book after Cat in the Hat. I just never got <laughs> to. Um, very sorry. Um, you know, I was interested in your, you know, the your talk about enthesitis and coupling that with Georg Chet's step talk from last year's Room Now Live about trauma and and that, you know, trauma probably as an instigator, for um, psoriatic disease, especially uh, see, you know, maybe it's, it, it, it's because of what it's doing at the emphasis.
2: Yeah, and how many times do we see that um, in the clinic? And I think we mostly ignored it. And I don't think we can, I, I think it makes total sense that physical stress and strain um, can uh, perpetuate uh, ongoing inflammation uh, and maybe even contribute to a flare of disease elsewhere. That makes sense when you think of what Georg and, and Ian are talking about, and that the healing of, of traumatic injuries is inflammation. And uh, that, so, so it makes sense that that, uh, in a person with already underlying genetic predisposition and meet with the disease state, it makes sense that they may, um, you know, if, uh, flare disease. So I think there's, there's definitely, you remember, remember 100 years ago, joint rest. That was the thing, you know, it was bad because people rested too long and then they couldn't move. But I think uh, appropriate uh, joint rest is, you know, I think that there's a place
0: for it. I saw a patient when I was a resident, I did a rotation, University of Pittsburgh with Tom Metzger. They had an inpatient uh, unit and we admitted a patient with severe spondylitis, very high sed rates, um, bed rest for a week. Acute phase reactions all came down. Um, He was totally better. Just with total bed rest. Shocking, very shocking. Our last question from uh, Dr. Patel was about do you, com- do you combine OTESLA and Biologic? I think we've all been tempted to go there. I think we've all done it. I don't know that there's any good e- evidence of OTESLA being or primalas being combined with a TNF inhibitor or an IL 17. There's a lot of anecdotalism about this. Um, so, Art, do you want to comment about? maybe the negative aspects of, or the negative news on either a primalast or IL-23 inhibitors in spondylitic disease? Well, I, I, I think for the combination, you're right, there's a ton of anecdotes, um,
2: not a lot of data, and I, I would love to see that data. There's an interesting abstract from corona uh, two years ago, I think, that uh, when they looked at a last use, an incredibly large amount of it was in combination. I, I want to say, I don't know if I'm remembering correctly 25 30 percent of a prem was used concomitantly with the biologic agent in the registry now we don't have the the data to say how they were doing before how they did after but I think a lot of people are trying it and um, I'd, I'd love to see some some you know actual trial data on that
0: yeah All right folks that's it for this week's t- uh, Tuesday Night Rheumatology. make sure you tune in next week we have um, our last RA session that features talks by um, uh, uh, Jeff Curtis talking about the COVID vaccination guidelines uh, that some of you know about. Stan Cohen talking about RA and liver, a really interesting talk. A lot of questions on that one. And Lou Bridges talking about epigenetics. That's next week at this same time slot. So be sure to register. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Artie. All right, hey, y'all have a good night.